0: You are listening to the podcast from Isaiah Church. Stay tuned off to it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi everybody and welcome. Our scripture reading today is going to be from James chapter 1. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And that's God's word to us today. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. We're in the middle of a series, as you can see, called We Were Made for This. We're looking in depth at what the brother of Jesus Christ, someone named James, had to say that the Christian life looks like. And we're backing up a little bit today to catch a section that we missed, but I think is really important to see. But if you, like some people I know, if you've started to, to, you know, sort of pick up the book of James and you started to read along as we go along in the series and read James for yourself, that's great. I hope you do that. probably if you've done that, as you've done that, you've noticed something as you go, and which is that James is, how shall I put it? Uh, James is a person who likes to keep it real. James likes to represent. James likes to Tell it like it is. James, as one of our staff uh, members said the other week, she said, I like that James. He's a straight shooter. And you know what? He is. And James is. But why is he so brutally honest at times? Why is he so direct? Well, on one hand, James was none other than the brother of Jesus Christ. James was someone who came to believe because he didn't believe at first. James was someone who came to believe that his brother was God, his own Lord, and seeing your own brother Come back from the dead. will give you courage to be a truth teller. But along with that, James was also someone who was steeped in Jewish culture, who had been taught the Ten Commandments, and above all, had a view that this world was a world, the world that God created. And because God made it, God knows what's best for the world. And so all James is doing in his book, in the middle of his Holy Ghost-inspired, Jesus-centered, five-chapter tweet storm, is he's calling humanity to become the best possible version of itself it can be. James, in other words, has a God-shaped moral vision for what humanity ought to be and can become. And he's calling us to live inside of that. So today, James is going to show us how we were made for something incredible. Made for something every human being loves, and especially every American loves, except he's going to show us what we were made for and what we love doesn't necessarily come about like we might think. James is going to show us today, and here's, here it is, here's a big idea, that we were made for the liberating paradox of Christian freedom. We were made for the liberating paradox of Christian freedom. What do I mean? Well, years ago, someone named Martin, no, not the dude with the 90s TV show, but another Martin, Martin Luther, someone who launched a whole movement of freedom in his day. He put the liberating paradox of Christian freedom like this. A little book he wrote, he said, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all subject to none. And a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And if that thought right there sounds strange, offensive, you know, weird somehow, give me a shot. And let me try to show you today what I think he means and why James is saying we were made for that. So, to experience the true kind of freedom you were made for, James is going to say three things to us today. We're going to look at them in turn. First, James is going to say, don't be that guy. Then he's going to tell us, don't do that thing. And finally, he's going to tell us, do look into the something that became a someone. Don't be that guy. Don't do that thing. Do look into the something that became a someone. Hope I got your attention so far. All right, here we go. Here's my question. How can we experience the liberating paradox of Christian freedom? Number one, first of all, Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. What do I mean? Well, look at verse 16. James shoots you straight. He says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. So, what are we not supposed to be deceived about, hoodwinked about, have the wool pulled over our eyes about? He's about to tell you. God's got a gift for you, he's about to tell us, but you may be tricked into thinking that gift isn't a good gift. Here's how he starts. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above. It's coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He's saying God literally isn't shady. He's got a good gift for you. Here it is. Verse 18, the gift is he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits. Of all he created. And that word right there, the word firstfruits, is the key word. What is? What were the firstfruits? Well, this is an agricultural metaphor James is using. In a Jewish culture, uh, when a man planted his crops, the very first thing that grew, the first tomato, the first bean, the first corn stalk that grew was sacred to and belonged to God, and so the people gave them back to God. Those things that grew first were his. They were called the first fruits. And so James is saying to the Christian person in the same way, you, we are God's first fruits. So here's what he means. Here's the gift. The gift is that God owns you. If you're a Christian, God owns you. You belong to God. That's the gift he's saying. It's a good gift. You belong to God. God owns your time, your money, Your body, your house, your car, your resources, your food. He owns your heart. He owns you. You belong to him first. You're his first fruits. And of course, right away, we react. Right away, we don't like that. We say, that doesn't sound like a gift. That sounds more like a curse. But James would say, no, 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 no. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Don't be deceived. God's ownership of you is a good thing. It's a gift. But why would we react like that? How could we be deceived about that? Here it is. It's all because of how we define freedom in our culture. We are, by and large, are children of the Enlightenment. American culture, by and large, has tricked us, deceived us into defining freedom in purely negative terms like this. We define freedom as in being free from As in freedom from rules, freedom from authority, freedom from people telling me what to do. Why? Because that's what we think freedom is, being free from. And of course, that can work up to a point. That is true up to a point because it's good to be free from abuse, good to be free from addictions. Oh, but that could go on. But that is not the full picture of biblical freedom, nor is it the highest picture of Christian freedom. Here it is. Christian freedom is not being free from. Really, it's being free when. Not being free from, it's being free when. Let me give you three examples to try to help you. Number one, almost two years ago, I was out on the lake here in Austin with some friends when I I was going ridiculously fast. Way too fast on a jet ski and I had my son on the back and I swerved to avoid an oncoming boat that I didn't see. Once again, going too fast. And I crashed and I blew up my elbow and my knee and my son and I skipped across the water like rocks on a pond and thankfully he was completely fine and while we lay there in the water sort of you know gasping and panning my body feeling like a crash test dummy he said dad I said yeah he said dad he said that was epic and of course that let me know he was fine but later after that my wife looked at me you know sort of limping around holding my elbow and she said this is what you always do. I'm just glad it was you and not him. And, of course, I was guilty as charged. He's totally right. Here's my point. I may be free in my mind to go as fast as I want to go. Maybe free in my mind to ignore limits and believe. I have the reflexes of a 21-year-old man, but I am not free in my body to do so. Therefore, to continue to experience the freedom... Of good health and a happy body that mm, stays out of the hospital, I don't try to turn a jet ski while I was going 75 miles an hour. If I restrain myself in one area, I experience freedom in another. Example number two. Many of you, including myself, have children who take voice lessons or music lessons of one sort or the other. And when another one of my sons, I'm kind of like Father Abraham from the old song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. If You know that song, that's sort of me. But another, when another one of my sons uh, first started playing his instrument to get him to practice was like trying to get, I don't know, three, seven, ten cats to take a bath together. It was, to use a word unpleasant, there was to quote Christ weeping and gnashing of teeth. But unless he practices, unless a child practices, unless we practice, he'll never experience the joy of the freedom. That comes from playing a piece with grace and emotion and poise and confidence in front of a crowd at a recital. Therefore, to experience the richer, deeper freedom of playing music, he restricts his behavior in other ways. Now you're saying, all right, Morgan, I think I'm getting it. I think I'm getting it. Just saying that true freedom is freedom from everything. Morgan, I get it. You're saying that doesn't really cut it. I don't want to be that guy, be that girl who believes that anymore. So, Morgan, I get it. What you're saying is that discipline itself and discipline alone, obeying the law of any kind, will make me free. You're saying, Morgan, if I superimpose over my life any kind of restriction— and truth claim, and commit myself to that, I'll be free? Like say, for example, Islam, Hinduism, Atheism, Americanism, workaholism, no, I'm not saying that. And here's why, final example. Because most of you watching this today and grew up in American schools like I did, maybe some of you were told what I was, internalized what I did, which is this message. You can grow up to be whatever you want. And so, when I was a kid and I heard that, I liked the idea of building things, making things out of wood. And so, I made a couple of pine wood derby race cars when I was a kid. I took shop in high school. I made my, my mom a cutting board for Christmas one year. you welcome, mom. Uh, then, uh, one summer during college, I worked a construction job. I dug post holes, I painted houses, I poured concrete, all of that. The only problem was that I was terrible at all of it. My Pinewood Derby cars never won. The cutting board I made my mom for Christmas fell apart shortly. And my boss on the construction site berated me consistently for my overall, here's the word, incompetence. Here's the point. I can imagine all day long, I ought to be building high-end homes, but the truth is I do not have the mechanical ability to pull that off. I could restrict myself to doing construction my whole life and the best I could ever deliver to you would be a flimsy cutting board on a holiday. Therefore, true freedom, here's my point, comes not by being free from, but being free when as in. I am most free when I surrender to and when I live within the restrictions of my design. The greatest example of this, of course, is a fish. Take a goldfish. Let's say you saw Goldie flop out on the lawn one day is that fish free you say no I say why not maybe Goldie's chosen to flop out on the lawn hey who are you to tell Goldie he's got to live in the water it's so narrow-minded of you set that brother free let him be free on the pavement in August in Texas oh you're saying it's not free why not because it's not in the environment It was made for, designed for. Is it restrictive to put the fish back into the narrow place of the water? Technically, yes, in reality, no. What is it? Well, when you place that fish back into the water, it doesn't crush the fish. No, it liberates the fish. It sets the fish free. It's a paradox, isn't it? The limitation of the water brings out the beauty, the design, the fish. You could say, you could say, When you place that fish back in the water, it would be a good gift to the fish. And James says, that's what God has done for you. And whenever you say to God, God, I'm yours exclusively. God, I belong to you. I was made for you first. You, now jumping back into the water, your soul was made to swim. But when you say to anything else, first, a boyfriend, girlfriend, a career, your political party, entertainment, video games, exercise, I exist for you first. You think you're choosing freedom, but you're just a fish flopping, gasping, dying on the pavement. No, true freedom comes when you are living for the God who loves you. And James is saying, I don't want you to be that guy, that girl who thinks otherwise. Why did God command Pharaoh to let the people go in the Old Testament? Come on, what did he say? God commanded Pharaoh, let my people go. Go, let them be free. Why? Come on, finish the sentence. Finish the verse. Don't be like every American movie maker who cuts the verse in half and doesn't finish it because they only think freedom means freedom from. Why does God demand we end slavery and oppression? He said, let my people go, Exodus 820, so that they may worship me. Another translation says, so that they may serve me. Not you, Pharaoh. See, true freedom isn't just freedom from Pharaoh. God is showing us true freedom is when we're free to worship, serve the God who made us. People are only truly free when they're able to live out their design, which is why systems of oppression should be ended. They keep people from living out who they're made to be. And we, like God, should labor, sacrifice to end those. That brings, of course, up a question. How do we know what our design is in the first place? How do we know who we were made to be and how do we live that out? Oh, great. Glad you're asking the question. James is about to tell us, how do we live out our design to be truly free? Number two, he's gonna tell us now, here we go. Number two, he's gonna tell us, don't do that thing. Not just don't be that guy, but don't do that thing. What is that? verse 22. He says, "Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says." So, if the first level of deception was cultural, this level of deception is volitional, as in "Sometimes the culture tricks you," sometimes, sometimes you. Can trick yourself. To live out your design, he's saying you have to resist and reject a kind of self-deception. What does that look like? What's that self-deception? James says, all right. Here's how self-deception works. He says, yeah, that's, that's like someone who looks in a mirror. Let's say you went and looked in the mirror. You saw that you had spinach in your teeth, uh, you know, crusties in your eyes, something that grew on your face overnight. And then you look in the mirror, you turned around, you walked away from the mirror, and you said, Ship shape. Oh, you'd say, I look great. I looked in the mirror and that fixed it all. What kind of a person could believe that? Oh, a person who was kidding themselves, lying to themselves, deceiving themselves. And in the same way, James is saying, if you only listen to God's word and don't do God's word, you're lying to yourself. You're not really free. You're not liberated as a human being. You're not living out your design think about it think about it if you insisted that you knew better about the car you drove than the designer of the car if you insisted that the whole owner's manual thing was a crock if you believe the whole owner's manual thing was like some deep state conspiracy theory designed to keep you down and limit your freedom if you insisted that then at some point the car would actually break down and your freedom would be limited Wouldn't it? And in the same way, God's word is kind of like, though this is not a perfect or exclusive metaphor, but in a very real way, in this way, God's word is kind of like an owner's manual, in the sense that the creator, the designer, has taken time, taken effort to let you know how you work best. But if you only listen to the owner's manual, if you only read the owner's manual, but you didn't do it life still wouldn't work right. You wouldn't be free. Now, let's say you actually were that car manufacturer. You poured your heart into creating something beautiful and amazing. How would you describe a person who took what you designed? They turn around and said to you, the one who made it, the one who invented it, I don't know what you're talking about. I know what's best for the car you created and invented. Now, if someone said that to you, I don't know about you, but that would sound to me, here's the tough truth James hints at, that would sound arrogant. It would be arrogant to say that. And so if you, in the same way, if I look at his word, God's word, and say, God, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to do that, live like that. That's arrogant, which is why James says one verse earlier, humbly, accept humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you and right about now you may be saying morgan all right i think you got a point but come on morgan are you saying that to be free to experience christian freedom i not only have to submit myself to god i have to submit myself to god's word the christian scriptures what's called the bible yes Yes, I am saying that. And if, again, you're like most people in our culture right about now, you're going, Morgan, uh, I feel super, even more uncomfortable with that because I don't like what the Bible teaches me. To which I would reply, what does the Bible teach that makes you uncomfortable? are the parts say for example which teach you that God is love unconditional love and that he wants to pour his love into your heart in infinite ways for infinity and bring you to be with him for forever that God wants you to experience that does that make you uncomfortable probably not how about the parts which teach that other people should forgive you no matter what show you mercy in every situation that that teach you that that teach them that they should love you no matter what does that make you uncomfortable probably not so what parts do make you uncomfortable well for a lot of us and for example the parts which makes us uncomfortable i pick one part is a part which teaches that god actually has a design for our bodies and for specifically therefore sexual expression I'll bet it makes you uncomfortable to hear that God limits sexual expression to the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman and that he as the judge of the whole world has the right to tell you that. So then we should just be honest and say, it's really not what the Bible teaches that makes us uncomfortable. It's just certain parts of what the Bible teach that makes us uncomfortable. But but think about two things. First, while our culture loves the teaching of Jesus to forgive our enemies, turn the other cheek, lay down our rights on the behalf of others because those things sound so nice. Other cultures globally really struggle with loving their enemies. As a matter of fact, when you go to many cultures uh, whose people have been on the receiving end of genocidal experimentation, whose sons have been conscripted as child soldiers, whose daughters have been raped en masse, to look at them and tell them that Jesus commands them to love, forgive their enemies, that makes them uncomfortable. But to tell those same cultures, no, no, actually sexual expression is limited to marriage, that would be like a sigh of relief, a breath of fresh air. It would bring them freedom in that culture. Second, second though, why is it, think about this, why is it that most of the people we know like the same things about the Christian scriptures we like, and most of the people that we know in our life are uncomfortable with the same things we are uncomfortable with? Why is that? Here's why. And now I hope you can see it. It's because most of our objections to humbly submitting to the word of God come not from our own intellect, not from how smart we are, but actually from our own culture. We think we're being super smart, super intellectual. When we look at some parts of the Bible and say, nah, we're not being that. We're really just being super cultural. You say Morgan, but what about all the like the the polygamy and the patriarchy I see in the Bible? Um, um. Listen, the Bible never teaches you those things. It only shows you those things so you won't do those things so you won't be that guy. Just like TV shows, movies, plays, they show you characters who make mistakes so you won't do them. It's the don't do drugs episode of the Bible. See, the Bible never endorses those things. It's doing incredible storytelling instead. It shows you why those things fail and it shows you why not just bad individuals damage people but bad systems like polygamy and patriarchy damage people but above all else the storytelling shows you a god of grace who comes into those broken systems into those broken individuals lives like you and like me and loves them and uses them and works in history no matter what is going on see Our objections to humbly submitting to the word of God only show us that much more, that we need to do that. Otherwise, how can we ever escape the trap that our culture, every culture pushes us into to try to make us to be? See, the very fact that every culture disagrees with God's word at some point just shows that much more. The word of God is not a product of any one culture. And if your culture agreed with everything in there, that means your culture probably wrote it, which means it is immediately dated, ethnocentric, and ultimately, most importantly, not liberating. But the Christian scriptures have offended every person in every culture at some point. Why? Because God Almighty, who designed us, who made us, who created us, who loved us, isn't trying to enslave us, but to free us ourselves from our culture so don't do that thing don't do that thing where you only listen but you don't do because you think you know better humbly accept that the word of truth god's word can save you both in terms of eternity and how you live function flourish right now but that takes something, doesn't it? It takes what James is saying. And he calls like a humility, a softness of heart. Where can we get that softness, the trust that we need? What do we need to see to get that softness of heart that causes us to trust and humbly live inside and accept God's word, which can save us? James is going to tell us, number three, finally, to get the power that you need to live this all out. Number three, he says, do look, though, into the something that became a someone. The something that became a someone. He say, Morgan, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the ultimate, beautiful paradox that James is pushing us to see right here he says but whoever looks that means to look and keep on looking intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard but doing it they will be blessed that is happy in what they do so James says to be free to be blessed you've got to look at and keep on looking into something he calls it the law that gives freedom. Another translation says the law of liberty. Again, James is combining two things Americans don't think can coexist. Laws and liberty, restrictions and freedom. What's he doing? Well, on one hand, he's pushing you to look at the law of God and acknowledge that living by it is a beautiful thing. He's saying, look into the law that compels us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Because the law of God, as the psalmist tells us, is perfect. It revives the soul. And isn't it true that if humanity lived like that, we would all be free? Yes. So why aren't we? Because at the same time, James is telling us to look into the law. James is forcing us to look into ourselves and to acknowledge that no one can keep that perfect law perfectly. No one can completely keep God's commandments on their own. No one can look into themselves and say, honestly, authentically, I have perfectly kept the law of liberty. No one can say that is. Except for one, for one. Because when Jesus Christ came into the world, this is what the writer of a New Testament letter called Hebrews said about him, quoting Psalm 40. The writer says that when Jesus Christ came into the world, here was his heart's cry. He says when Christ came into the world, Hebrews 10, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you weren't pleased. Then I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And he did. Because he loved the Lord his God. And he loved doing the will of God because he loved the law of God. Because Jesus affirmed the moral law of God is binding for humanity. He kept the law of God. He kept it perfectly, flawlessly, majestically. And because he did all of that, Jesus Christ was free to live a perfectly human, perfectly full life. He loved the outcast because he loved the law of God. He spoke truth to corrupt power because he loved the law of God. He elevated women. He honored widows because he loved the law of God. He turned enemies into friends. He taught with such a breathtaking moral vision and clarity that in the end, the only thing his enemies could convict him of was claiming to be God, which he did not deny, though it would have saved his life. And what did he get for it? hmm? What did Jesus Christ get for loving you, loving me, loving his neighbor as himself perfectly in every moment. And for loving the Lord as God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, he got the cross. He willingly laid his life down in your place, my place, forgiving his enemies to bring you and me into the free family of God to give us new birth. His constriction has brought us freedom. His restriction has brought us life. And when you see that, when you see Jesus living by God's law, What do you think about him? Do you think he was mm, regressive? Do you think he was primitive? Like less than intellectual? Like you're smarter than him? Like he was some small town farm boy who's never seen the big city? Or do you see humanity fully alive? How can the one who most deeply kept the law be at the same time the most loving being who's ever lived? Here's why. It's because our modern definition of freedom is junk. It just is. It's not true. Our modern definition of freedom from all rules is basically selfishness. And so if we find that our definition of something is killing us, we've got to drop it and instead look intently into the life of Jesus, the true law of liberty come to life. And when you see that, you see the most free being in the universe, Jesus become, like Martin Luther said, a dutiful servant for all. And you see what it brought about. You can use your freedom to live now for Jesus. So him said he left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. See, in the end, saying that Christianity, saying living for God, humbly accepting the word of truth, is too narrow, is too restrictive, it's like saying true love is too narrow, too restrictive. Does a fish lose its freedom when it's put back in the water? Does it become less free or more, oh, more? See, to become a Christian is to be put back. To live for God is to be put back into the very water. souls were made to swim in. Church, I hope that speaks to you. I'm going to pray for you now and pray that we would have the grace to respond in faith to that and see our lives changed by the liberating paradox of Christian freedom. Lord, we come to you now, and Lord, we're asking for help now for ourselves, for our neighbors, for our country. We would see we are most free when we live for you first. We see we're most free when we live for our neighbor first and not ourselves first. Lord, give us the grace to repent and to respond and actually in turn to become more and more free who you've meant us to be, who you've meant our communities to be, what you've meant our nation to be as we live in and respond in the water of your word. I pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.